0: Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. As cinemas are still closed, we rely on new releases from
1: Prime and Netflix. We have two for you this month.
0: For our other film
1: reviews,
2: the theme this month is Movies We Missed. But always wanted to see.
0: Amazingly, even Jeff has made a good choice. Every time, Neil, every time. <laughs> now, one thing that does remain constant is Darren's Dash, and this month's selection includes The Vast of Night, Summer of 84, and Bliss. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, don't get too excited, but it's just a couple of weeks to go before cinemas are open again. I can't wait. Although I will have to make sure there is no clash between film show-in times and protest meeting times. Hashtag Welsh Lives Matter.
1: Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. I also am a founder member of Hashtag Welsh Lives Matter says, Jeff, the old entitled white man.
2: <laughs> Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm, I'm here to annoy Jeff, which is why I'm not a member.
0: Oh, I would always call you a member. Right. course, <laughs> truth.
2: You've been <laughs> waiting for that, have you?
0: <laughs> How long did it take you to think that one
3: up? But, oh, that's weeks of work in there, I'm it sure. It was, it was. <laughs> Phil, over to you, mate. Hi, I'm Phil, and you can find my movie reviews on philverbearblog.wordpress.com.
4: Hi, my name's Darren, and you can find me waffling on about films and television on halfguarded.com.
0: So it's great to be back with everyone again, even if it is all virtual. Now, rather than start the show with my usual moaning about what's wrong in the movie world, I'd like to give a tribute to the wonderful actor, Sir Ian Holm, who passed away recently. Now, this is important to me because the year I became a full-fledged cinemaholic is the same year Ian Holm moved into, shall we say, more commercial movie fare.
2: Ian Holm was that
0: old. I don't think he was that old. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. A man so subtle, I'm sure he was used as the model for the major character in Faulty Towers. Anyway, yeah, was. in the many fitting tributes there have been, Many have spoken about Alien, his Oscar nomination for Chariots of Fire, and of course his association with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films. And I'm sure my co-hosts will have words to say about those landmark performances, but I just want to sing the praises of his less well-known roles, which have kept me entertained from the start of my regular cinema-going days. The first time I saw him, which was back in April 1975, it was in the impressive British disaster film Juggernaut, Juggernaut had a very interesting cast, Richard Harris, Anthony Hopkins, and Omar Sharif amongst them, and it was directed by Richard Lester. However, Ian Holm more than held his own as the shipping line owner, Nicholas Porter, who finds out that one of his ships has had a number of bombs placed on board. Since then, he's appeared in such diverse films and TV series as Robin and Marion as King John, Jesus and Nazareth, March or Die, Holocaust, in which he played a very memorable Himmler, Time Bandits, I mean who can forget that Napoleon yeah. character just always yes. going on about he just likes to see little people hitting each other. Dance with a stranger, an excellent polonius in Branners Full Length Hamlet, two films of David Cronenberg, and again, who can forget his moving scientist role in the classic Day After Tomorrow?
1: Which was a terrible film, I'm afraid. Yeah. But
0: yeah, shockingly bad. But he yeah. was good in it.
1: He was all right, blimey, Jeff. It's, it's a good job Sir Ian Holm was a workaholic. Oh, there would be no films for me to to watch left out of your list. Uh, the first movie I saw him in was a film called Robin and Marion, 1976. I think that was the year after Juggernaut. And in Robin and Marion, he played a wicked and treacherous King John, playing opposite Sean Connery, Audrey Hepburn, Robert Shaw and Richard Harris. And strangely enough, Ronnie Barker from the to Ronnie's fame as Friar Tuck. Now, if you can stand out and be remembered amongst those names, you know that Sir Ian was someone special. Of course, I loved him in Lord of the Rings and Alien. I thought he was just great in that. But I also loved his voice actor work. And I remember when he died, I was talking to you about some of the great stuff he'd done on the BBC radio. And I remember one Piece he did back in the early 90s, he did a really weird uh, radio play for Radio 4 called The Wisconsin Death Trip. For me personally, I think it'll always be pod from the borrowers. On TV, I watched both series with my children and loved every minute of it. It was just wonderful. And he just really got the character so well.
0: So, gentlemen, over to you. What are your thoughts on this actor?
3: Do you think he was
0: frequently undervalued in UK cinemas?
3: Um, Well, for me, it's all about Bilbo, I've got to say. I know you mentioned Lord Mm. of the Rings, but it was always one of my favourite books. And actually, when that film came out, there was so much riding on it on whether or not it would live up to expectations and it did and obviously part of that was he was just outstanding in that role everything else you said just seems like i've got a lot of films to catch up on because i've not seen pretty much everything that you mentioned it didn't matter how small the role was he was always able to put his mark on it do you, do you know we got cast as bilbo no nope. what happened was in the early
0: 80s radio 4 did a 26 part version of lord of the rings and he was Frodo Baggins. And Peter Jackson used that radio play as his template to how he was going to approach the film. He he just loved it, and he had to have Ian Holm in the film, so he offered him the part of Bilbo Baggins.
2: Ah, just such an accomplished actor on the stage that going to these incredible roles, really, and so diverse. I mean, going from Sam Mussabini in Sharits of to Napoleon in Time Bandits, Mr. Kurtzman in Brazil, Polonius in Hamlet, Bilbo, of course, Cornelius in The Fifth Element, uh, Skinner in Ratatouille. uh, It's just a sad loss. Ratatouille.
0: He was in Ratatouille. I'd forgotten that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's such a sad loss, and uh, yeah, to film and of course the theatre. Darren, I mean, to me, it
4: was one of those actors that had this like chameleon type quality in the. He would yeah. do lots and lots of different roles and it would be so different on him. Sometimes it never really twigged that I was seeing the same actor. So obviously I'd seen him in Alien, where to me he was as, as scary as the actual Alien itself. And then I'd see him in like Brazil. Uh, I'd see him in, in Time Bandits. I saw him in Henry the Faith as Fluellen Flo and films like The Fifth Element and obviously Hobbit. And it sort of never twigged that the same guy who played... Ash in was the same guy as was, was playing Bilbo Baggins or, or was playing uh, F- for Ellen. I think that's just like a testament to how good he was. He is one of the, the lesser known sort of like, you know, real archetypal British stage actors. You know, he had that sort of gravitas about him. And any time he was in a role, like you say, even if it was something like, you know, quite sort of like, you know, nice and sweet, like Loch Ness, it would bring a real sort of weight to it another film that I sort of remember him being absolutely sort of almost terrifying is Madness of King George. That was a, oh, you know, yes, a yes. You know, that was a really good one. Course, but yeah. it's that sort of actor that that you can only get in Britain. Yeah. You know, and I think it comes from the you know, from the stage, but just that sort of I guess what I'm looking for is class. You know, just just complete and, and utter class act. I really wish I'd actually seen him live on the stage. Did a lot of animated ones. He was also in Animal Farm as as, uh, as Squealer, you know. So he, he sort of, you know, he he was just a you know, just, just a, a great a great yeah. actor. Yeah, yeah. Try
1: joining the dots with all the characters. <laughs> There's no connection, is there? He just. He's just a wonderful jobbing actor, you know. They they get they send him a script and he'd go, yeah, I can do that. Or they send him another, yeah, I can I can play an alien robot. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, not a problem. Oh, I can play, you know, the, the a lovely little imaginary character that lives under the floorboards of some yeah. children's house. I can play you know,
2: Napoleon. Uh,
1: I can, I can play Napoleon, a weird Napoleon who's got a real hang up about his size. You know, Sam comedy. Sabini, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. and and, and great, to be fair. And these are words I don't use very often. I apologise for any offence this is now going to cause. Oh, good grief, no. But, but Neil summed this up well. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> when it, oh, when it, good lead up there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> Yes. When, it, when he said, um, you know, he played in one year, he did Charity Fire and the napoleon cameo in tamban you can't get anything more different than that and both were were class accents you got oscar nominated for chariot so just goes Mm. to show thank god for that
1: i was really worried (laughs) where that was going yes yeah
2: (laughs) how much do we need to cut Uh,
1: okay as fascinating as this is and i must admit i learned a few things it's time to move on to the reviews
2: Continuing with the lockdown format we introduced last time, we will first look at a couple of new films before moving on to our movie selection theme of the month. This month, films we always wanted to see, but never got around to it.
1: Let's start with a film which was playing in cinemas when they closed in March and went quickly to Amazon Prime. The film is My Spy.
5: I'm just not that good with people. There is one thing I'm good at.
0: Run with
5: the, the mission was to find out what they knew, but that's kind of difficult now that you killed everyone. You just don't think you're cut out for the intelligence. This is your last shot. Are you CIA? How'd you get in here? Oh, okay, she has a camera. She might be streaming. If Kim finds out we got made by a nine-year-old, my career's over. What's the option? Kill her. Make it look like an accident. Wow, still recording.
0: We can cut a deal. I want you to teach me how to be a spy.
5: But just to be clear, this is a one time arrangement. Never again.
0: I can promise. So, what's first? Shooting range, obstacle course, or to walk away from an explosion? I don't want to
5: go to school. I just want to the rules. The objective of this exercise is to get past me. A good idea might be to cause a distraction, because otherwise, there'd be zero chance of you being. Could... <gasps> Nine. I'm just rough
2: exterior. Just You're a nice
1: guy. <laughs> what is he doing? This looks like the
6: wedding at the end of Shrek. I just wanna break the
0: rules. As you guessed from that trailer, this is a comedy. Guardians of the Galaxy star Dave Bautista. CIA agent JJ. He's so tough, he has initials and not a proper name. His mission is surveillance of a single mum called Kate, played by Parisa Fitzhenley, and her daughter, nine-year-old Sophie, played by Chloe Coleman. That might seem an odd mission. However, Kate's deceased husband had links to the illegal arms trade and murderous relatives might come calling. This routine mission quickly falls apart when young Sophie works out who JJ is and demands to be trained as an agent in exchange for her silence. It sounds absurd, you're not kidding there, but is it fun? <laughs> Phil, what do you think?
3: Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> I watched this with my children, and I say I watched it with my children, I showed them the trailer and they weren't um, interested, so I went, screw it, I'm putting it on anyway, because obviously we're reviewing it. And after about 15 <laughs> minutes, they were wrapped and stopped everything they were doing and watched it along with me. It's a really good family film. And yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, it's stupid. Batista is really, really good at looking shocked and dumbfounded by things happening around him it's almost just like the more ridiculous it is, the sort of more sort of deadpan he gets. And uh, you've got the likes of Kristen Shaw as his sidekick, who's desperate to be a secret agent. Ken Jong as his crazy boss, because you've got to have a crazy boss, haven't you? If you're a, yep. if you're a, a, a rogue cop slash CIA agent.
0: <laughs> yeah, for, for him, I thought that was one of his lower key performances.
3: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, it's a family film. And I think it actually ticks all the boxes that it needs to. Uh,
2: It's generic. It uses
3: the kindergarten
2: cop formula. It's a tough guy who does a family film. They all do it. Most have the same formula. It's just trite and silly. By the way, my daughter was way more manipulative at nine years old. So even that missed the mark, to be honest. (laughs) Um, The real problem with this film is considering the films are about to follow. This comes a very poor last. Dave Batista, to be honest, he just does the same thing all the way through. He does what he did in in, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and just made it slightly less alien and more human. I, I didn't think this was good at all.
4: This was okay. It, um, I, I have to say I do like the fact that it was a, an action film comedy that you that you could have as a family. I think families have being underserviced in, in that regard. Action films always seem to be for the older audiences now and comedies are. So So, in that, I'll give it a lot of leeway. I, I do like Dave Bautista. I think he's got a lot of presence when it comes to action films. I think in Guardian of the Galaxy, he made Drax you know, his own, he's really good in that. I don't think he had the... the... Didn't, sorry, Darren, didn't he used to be a wrestler or something? He was a very uh, yeah. major wrestling star, yes. It wasn't quite The Rock, but it was a main eventer for a few years. It was as big as John Cena for a while, put it that way.
2: Well, he's a better actor, that's for sure.
4: <laughs> he's, he just didn't seem to have the dryness to pull off some of this. And to be honest, the script wasn't that great any, anyway. There were some bits that I did actually enjoy. I, I liked it when it mocked action films in general, and they kept doing a, a gag where we were walking away from an explosion. It was just a sort of you know a, a decent ninety-minute film, but it wasn't one that blew me away. But not not one that I hated either. Like I said, I did get a few laughs in it. I thought the plot was pretty much a stakeout.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, unlike most of you, I had incredibly low expectations of this one. And and I ended up really enjoying it. I watched it with my wife. We both laughed, you know, more than half a dozen times. Yeah, it's a by-the-numbers action hero gets in touch with his inner goodness with the help of a precocious kid movie. Not as good as Kindergarten Cop, but honestly what is. As Darren said, I like the gag about you don't look... Back at the explosions, and and that gag, they took that to another level. With they couldn't get the final explosion to walk away from, so they had to actually manufacture an explosion, and the little girls still look back. So it was it was great. It was you no know, good fun. His assistant, uh, his tech person, uh, the young woman, I thought she was hysterical. Really funny. What was her name again, Phil? Uh,
3: it's Kristen Shell, She was in Flight of the Concords. Brilliant show. Yes. Oh yeah. God, no. All right, no. <laughs>
1: She was great. And I liked the way she could operate all the tech, but she couldn't fire a gun, you know? And there's lots of little silly moments like that.
0: I find it interesting that all these tough guy actors have got to do this at least one film with kids. You mentioned Kindergarten Cop. I think Schwarzenegger did it slightly better with Jingle All The Way. It is interesting that they all do it. I mean, Graham clearly hasn't mentioned his hero, the Vin and the Pacifier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, oh, and the U- the UK version of the word pacifier is dummy, and I think that would have worked better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it, yeah, it's a, a a fun family film for the most part. I think Batista is out of his depth; he needs a team. Did to play you right. think
1: so? Really? I, I yeah, thought he I,
0: was good. He's an ensemble player, and and when he's not got an ensemble cast around him, I thought he struggled a little bit.
3: No, i I'd, I'd with that. I was going to say final thought on it, though, in terms of we've mentioned Kindergarten Cop, and Darren said you know, family films aren't serviced with action movies. And I actually, you know, have you That's seen Kindergarten point. Cop recently? Because I would oh, no, show, I would yeah. not show that to my nine-year-old and six-year-old. So you know, being able <laughs> to watch this with them, you know, it does exactly what Darren just said. It means the family can watch a, a, you know, a light-hearted action movie because, as good as Kindergarten Cop might be. I think your you kids have got to be sort of more like twelve and ten, you know, to watch that sort of film. You've got Peter
0: Segal directing. I don't think he's a, a, a great comic director. I didn't think he was that good when he's working with Adam Sandler, and he's gone downhill from there. But some of the action scenes were good. You speak about the walking away with explosions. The opening fight was oh, that
1: was great fun. That fun. Yeah, that, that, that pulls you in actually. That's a clever yeah. little
0: bit they put at the front. Yeah, so it is overall fun. However, the kid is so precocious. And so trying to organise, you know, to me she was a case of legalizing smacking again. Oh fuck <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I, loud. Jesus.
1: <laughs> oh, we've but gone from I, Welsh I, Lives Matter to Corporal Punishment. Oh great, okay. I fine. didn't say
0: corporal punishment, I said beatings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, very forgettable, and definitely not the worst film we're gonna to review today.
2: That is our verdict on my spy. Let's go to our other new movie something much more serious to Five Bloods.
4: Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe.
5: Welcome back to Vietnam. Look at that, found. You're the man in all his blood. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived.
6: Hey! I have no place to stay.
5: Hey! We bury it. They do we come back and collect.
2: Modern-day Vietnam, four black veterans of the Vietnam War meet in Ho Chi Minh City for one final mission. Officially, they are in country to find and recover the body of their squad leader. Unofficially, they're there to recover CIA gold bullion, which they hid at the same place where their friend was killed. This last mission, however, is going to involve old ghosts as well as new dangers.
4: Darren. I thought this was great. I really did. I always have sort of difficulties with, with Summer Spike Lee's films. Obviously, he has a, a an agenda and a very respectable agenda that. but I think sometimes that sort of comes across very heavy handed in his movies. And there were a few elements in this in this one where, where I thought that was the case. But I just thought that this was an absolutely you know fantastic action movie. I thought it's absolutely great. There were elements in it that I, I found a little. Jarring, so and and I understand why he did these things. So, for example, when he would mention a a key figure from the Vietnam War, and would show a photograph of them, and it did make it memorable. But I, I just felt it could it could be done with a bit more finesse. But it did work because obviously, I I took the names and everything. I thought this was you know a, a great adventure movie. I loved how it kept flashing back. And changing the uh, the screen ratio of mm. the um, of them so to when they were younger,
6: yes. and
4: you know, and, and so to giving it yeah. like that 70, uh, 70s vibe, I thought that was a really really clever thing. One thing, uh, and I'll seriously, I know this is going to come up because I think some people like it and some don't. I actually liked the fact that they didn't change the actors when they we were showing them as younger people. They kept the same ones. Sometimes in those films they'll either, nowadays they live, either de-age them or they'll have a completely different um, actor to play the younger version. By having them playing themselves as the younger and, and not altering them at all, for one, I felt it, it it gave you the sense that they were sort of looking back and remember thinking think of themselves now as in that situation. But I also found it quite poignant because the one who obviously didn't age was the one that they, uh, Chadwick Boseman, who they left behind. I loved, I loved that. Mm. Sorry, Dan. I I thought that
1: was brilliant. And it kept coming back to me, the line from the poem, they shall not grow old, you know, Mm. and he didn't grow old while they all did. And I thought that was just a beautiful reference to these old soldiers coming back and I thought that was great. I, I, really I thought did.
3: it also showed that the scars of that war were still with them. They were still there.
1: Oh God, that's yes. Cool, duh. Why yeah. didn't I get that? Yes, that's yeah, perfect. Yes, yeah.
3: They were still
0: stuck in Vietnam, both at that in point, their heads, mentally yeah. and physically.
1: Yeah.
4: Mm. And I thought, the fact, that they sort of, you know, Chadwick Boseman was remembered. As that time, because he was killed there. I thought that was very poignant and sort of like, you know, really, it was a good decision to, to do that. I think part of it was, as Spike Lee said, that they couldn't afford to double the age in any way. Uh, but I think it, it did work, <laughs> re- work really well. But yeah, I thought it was a fabulous moment, and much like Black Clansmate so sort of, it was, um, for want of a better word, educational because it sort of it emphasised all the problems that you know that Black servicemen had in, in the Second World War. I also liked the the, the bit with the DJ, um, who will basically be sort of sending out propaganda, but it was also propaganda, that basically, sort of, you know, hate, you know, had a lot of truth in it. And but, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that apparently mm. was a real character. They yeah. actually d- did use, you know, mm-hmm. there yep. was an actual sort of figure yep. that used to spout propaganda that the uh, <laughs> that the Americans could pick up and everything. So, so yeah, I, I thought I thought this was a, a fabulous film. It's a very long film, but it didn't feel like it. And I thought were some great performances as well. With De- Delroy Linda, I thought I thought was his his role in there was absolutely fabulous. I've got a bit of a
1: confession to make, lads. Uh... Uh, I think I might be Vietnamed out. In lockdown, I've watched Apocalypse Now, the final cut, because everybody said it was the best cut. Uh, full Metal Jacket, uh, The Deer Hunter, and all 18 hours of Ken Burns' documentary, Vietnam. <laughs> so I'd done all that, and still this film was outstanding. I really liked it. Might have been a little bit overlong, but I thought all four of the old comrades were excellent and i think i'm going to have to watch the five bloods next year to really appreciate it when i've got all these sort of other vietnam masterpieces out of my head i loved the idea of the black trump supporter unfortunately there's a lot of them out there <laughs> i just i just thought that was bizarre and weird considering what i've been watching over the last few months this movie really stood out well, and most of it's because of Spike Lee's cinematic direction. And this felt very cinematic. If you compare this with Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket, big, big sweeping vistas. This also had this, and a lot of humor and a lot of pathos. I just thought it was a great, great film. But
0: but not uh, only that, sorry, Graham to cut in there, yeah. but not only you know, it's cinematic. Uh, view on this. It's also Lee had clearly watched a lot of other Vietnam films. Oh, yeah. Mm, it, yeah. You know, got pockets now, But all the flashbacks were done like the Boys in Company C, which is not yes. that well known a film. It
1: was at moments it was like a montage of of film styles from the from the Vietnam films that have gone before. And it was just and I also found it incredibly interesting. And Darren's quite right. I mean Spike Lee has an agenda and to prove that, you know, Black people have contributed huge amounts to American society and American culture. Mm. Well, everything to American culture. But they've also contributed in other ways that never gets spoken about. And I I did like that thing. But I also liked the pieces in Ho Chi Minh City. It still had McDonald's and KFCs. So what exactly was this war for? In in summary, I thought it was well-made, excellently placed, engaging, really engaging film. You got sucked in so quickly. Beautifully shot. The cinematography was phenomenal. Uh, the sweeping visuals I've talked about, snappy dialogue, and the interesting characters, and it just yeah, just a great movie. Loved it.
3: Yeah, it's it's genius, and I yeah, you know, I really actually think that this could be Spike Lee's best director Oscar. So everyone's talked about bits they like. The bit I wanted to focus on: Spike Lee's direction. And I think Graham's right that actually there's things that happen in this that pull you out of the film. I think he's doing that on purpose, and, and they're the bits I want to talk about. So it's essentially two films for me. You could have given this to another director, and you'd have a really kind of interesting buddy sort of crime sort of thriller thing where the the money corrupts. And the film I referenced was um, a Simple Plan by Sam Raimi, where a group of friends come into some money and then that money corrupts them and you know, they start doubting each other. Now, you could have had that really interesting film set in Vietnam and it would be really gripping and thrilling. And then the other film that you've got is essentially a history lesson and a, an agenda piece. And the way that he manages to put that inside of this film And constantly pull you out and go, remember, we're talking about these things in amongst this actually really interesting, exciting action movie. That's what I I found really exciting about it. So the film opens with kind of a black history lesson around the Vietnam War with a load of steals and stuff. And then throughout the film, here pop up a photograph and some writing to say who, who that person was. And we've mentioned they didn't use younger actors and they didn't use de-aging effects. Initially, when that first happens, that's like a shock to the system. And it yeah. makes it hard for you to kind of see what you're seeing because that's not what, we, what we're used to. And again, yeah. I think he's pulling you out and he's saying, "You know, these guys are still going through this trauma, they still feel yeah. these effects. And the final thing he does, and I don't think any of you mentioned this, is he's, he does a lot of direct-to-camera actors talking to the camera. Yeah. And that's that's really yeah. uncomfortable. You know, there's a reason they don't do that because if somebody's staring at you whilst they're talking to you, that feels really uncomfortable. And that happens quite a lot in this film, especially with Daryl Lindo, when he's giving his full on Shakespearean rant to the camera about his emotions spilling out and his PTSD, etc. And all of those things are discombobulating and pull you out of this brilliant. Treasure of the Sierra Madre action noir, but it's doing that because it wants to make you think. And if you slip too far into the film and the fun story, you're not thinking. And I think that's why, that's my opinion of why he's doing that. And I, I just thought it was just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, couldn't agree more.
2: Uh, yes. The, I like the two films idea really good scenes just to just to highlight a few of them the paul's troubles throughout and pushing everyone away the ptsd and then the twist at the end is excellent i thought that yeah. was fantastic and the and the vietnamese attitudes too they they're treated as badly as uh, well, certainly the south were as the black americans in the in what they call the american war the scenes with um hanoi Hannah were very powerful. I I Certainly, when she was announcing the death of Martin Luther King, I just sort of felt a lump in my throat. You know, what were these kids thinking? And they were kids. You know, when you've got somebody telling you that, yeah, fantastic. Uh, It's a great idea, great timing, slightly overlong perhaps.
0: I certainly agree with Phil that Spike Lee is an amazing filmmaker. I think one of the most interesting in America today And I think this is a fantastic two-hour movie. Unfortunately, it's two and a half hours long. (laughs) It's desperately in need of editing. As has been said by many people before me, these are, in fact, two films in one. You've got the one where they're in Ho Chi Minh City and they're looking back on their military lives and their lives since, Uh, as Graham said. You know, there's a black Trump supporter in there. And I found that fascinating, almost like a Cassavetes film, where you'd be following these guys around Ho Chi Minh City. You would make it then a polemic on how America had treated its black soldiers during that time, how Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh City has essentially become American. That ironic tone throughout I, I thought would have been amazing. I would have loved to have seen that film. And that's the first half, and I think that's really good. I think the way it used the French people was a bit suspect. Yeah, it's almost like they almost became the villains of the film for a point, which I don't <laughs> think we've picked up on. But then you go into this Treasure of the Sierra Madre remake. Lee Makes No Secret it's one of his favourite films. And that is where the erratic editing, and I'm really sorry to disagree with you all, but I thought Delroy Lindo was awful in this film. I thought I thought it was just so over the top. It, it, went, it went up to 11, as they would say, in Spinal Tap, and it didn't need that. And, and I'll give you an example as to why that worked against it. And, Phil, you make an interesting point about had it put you into the film, you wouldn't have had all these little nuances about the black experience in Vietnam. But one of the best bits of the film in the second half was that sequence where the chap stands on the landmine. And how do they get him off? And that was a really tense sequence. And nothing else matched that as it went through. I thought, after that point, the film went downhill for me all the way. It was so fractured. There was so much he wanted to say, so much of the politics he wanted to bring in, that by the end of it, I thought, yeah, this is good, but it should have been brilliant. Good try, Spike. Not quite there. Not No Black clansman for me, I'm afraid.
1: Right. And from nitpicker uh jeff will go on and say that concludes our new releases for this month for older movies this month the challenge as we said earlier was each of us had to pick a film that we'd never seen but has always meant to watch the the choices as you will see were very different so let's start with neil who went all film swat on us and picked (laughs) the bicycle thieves
0: Okay, so before I give the synopsis, who, apart from Neil, hadn't seen this highly acclaimed classic before we had to review it? I hadn't. I hadn't. Nor me. The Bicycle Thieves is currently sitting at number 33 in Sight and Sound's film critic poll of the greatest films ever made. In terms of story, it's relatively simple. Set and filmed in 1948 in post-war Italy. Poverty is Everywhere, Antonio played by Lamberto Maggiurani, as a chance to rise above his poor existence. He is one of the lucky ones as he's selected for a job putting up film posters across Rome. A condition of employment is he must have a bicycle. His first day goes well until Antonio's bike is stolen. It then becomes a mission for Antonio and his son to travel the streets of Rome to try to find the thief and his bike. Or to shorten that synopsis, hey, you nicker my biker! (laughs) right okay so neil you selected this one why did you pick it and is it worthy of its classic status absolutely absolutely fantastic
2: i love the way this film sort of moved forward it goes towards comedy or drama and it just veers off and it's not Chaplin's the kid before anybody says that bruno the son is the intimate witness of antonio's humiliations and it gets worse and worse for him all through the opportunity to comfort his son and and for Antonio to realise he's more important than a bloody bicycle is lost. He nearly loses him several times, and when he finally finds him, he just wanders off somewhere else. Um, The masterly filmmaking and incredible cinematography of post-war Rome. The actors were actual real people out of work rather than actors is far more realistic, it works. I mean, it's a desperate watch. Uh, it's just watching him disappear into this horrible space where he just desperate to find his bike and forgets the things he already has. Yeah, it's compelling. Fantastic.
4: God, I, th- I thought this film was heartbreaking. I, I-, I really did. I just <laughs> thought it was, was such a, a sad movie this guy trying to basically sort of make the best of his life and and provide for his family and everything and and just as he gets to that stage circumstances just really affect him he ends up having to sort of make a few sort of decisions that that basically make him no better than the guy who stole his his bicycle itself it's just really heavy going I mean there are are a couple of scenes in there that I I found really telling him I mean well you mentioned the, the child and you're right. The, the, every so often, the, the child would basically, you know, wander off and, uh, and and get into situations. To me, the whole thing about that was that he was unable to care for him to, to basically raise his son because he was so distracted just by having to try and, you know, make a living. You know, the role of a father should be to bring up his, his child, but the inequities of, of the system basically prevented him from giving back his focus. And and there's this really touching scene where they go into a a little cafe and they order food that they've no way of actually paying for. And the kid sort of looks around and he sees other families and they're basically just sort of like gorging themselves without a care in the world. And just a little scene like that, I, I just thought, you know, it was a really sad movie. And there's no optimism any time. It just sort of gets you know bleaker and bleaker. And I, I thought it was just a really powerful film. I, I thought this was a great choice. And, it, and it's a, I will admit it's a film I probably would never have got around to watching otherwise.
1: I agree with both Neil and, and Darren, actually. It is a timeless work of art. Uh, I mean, it's a film you can go back to time and time again. It's just so well put together. Okay, it's a moment in history. It's just after the war. Italy is in tatters but it deals with ordinary people and the extraordinary things that happen from a small and petty crime it's just this cascade effect um i saw this movie way back in the 1970s at, uh, at college and it left an impression that still resonates today it really is something different and and as as Darren said it's heartbreaking so it's an emotional roller coaster because we're doing this show I I went and had a look at some of the reviews of it and people at the time hated it. They said it showed Italians in a very poor light, but I thought it, it, it didn't at all. And I mean even it Italian
0: through, gypsies, mate.
1: Oh, sh- Romany people, I think. Is the correct phrase there, Jeff? We're just trying to educate you. Oh, it won't work. <laughs> <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I mean, even the book's author didn't like it, uh, as his protagonist was a middle-class intellectual. Yes, yeah, and his funny. theme was the breakdown of civil order. Well, yeah, okay. Well, we've got civil order's broken down. This is, you know, this is a very poor time for for Italy, and the place is in tatters. And. The thing that I did notice this time watching it was that they've obviously got a better copy of the original movie, the original black and white. So it's got much more gray tones and and the city is more gray and everything's very gray. And then the tones get darker as it comes towards the close of the film. And I hadn't noticed that before. But mm. again, it's a bloody masterpiece, Jeff. I don't know why anybody would have any problems with this.
0: Yeah, You're thinking
3: about what I'm going to say, are you?
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
3: So I do agree, and I think it's artistically a masterpiece, and I'm really glad that I've watched it, and this is the first time I watched it. But it also falls into the category of film where I probably wouldn't watch it again, and maybe that is because there is not much of a feeling of hope, perhaps. But it is stunning in terms of the way it's put together, and the the, the sort of wall destroyed Rome that you see in the shots and stuff and the crisp photography is fantastic but there were two scenes that kind of stood out for me so there was one at the very beginning he'd already pawned his bicycle and in order to get it back they had to pawn their bed linen and when they did that and they were negotiating a bit of extra money and they give over their clothes he then gets to see through the window this guy just climb a ladder of this just tons of stuff that everybody's just pouring in to get a bit of extra money and it's all just there and nobody's using it and all these people who are desperately in need of it you know it's literally it's just a grant like a little reach from them but they're they're not allowed to use it because because of capitalism I don't know (laughs) I don't know exactly what but that was a really sort of striking moment and and the bit towards the end Darren alluded to where he's debating a decision that you know makes him know better than you know what has put him on the spiral in the first place you know they, those two moments for me were really sort of difficult and hard to watch and throughout the whole film, all I kept thinking of was is this is like a Ken Loach film and Yes. You know, Ken Loach films are hard to watch and mm. you know they're about ordinary working class people and they've got a lot to say and they're really important. But I find them really hard to watch. And again, I'm not sure that I've watched the Ken Loach film more than once either. And I actually found um, an interview because I looked it up after where Loach basically described this film as the film that changed his life. And, you know, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And you, So I found that there was a, an interview with The Guardian in 2010 where he described Bicycle Thieves as the film that changed his life. Wow. And I think you can really see that in, in Loach's films, and, and it's a really important film. But And I do think you should watch it, but I just I don't know that I could watch it again, and that's my only negative for it.
0: So, Phil, as a technical question for you then, as a cyclist, do you think you could do that with the
3: old ladder oh, on the shoulder? No, I couldn't. <laughs> The the way that the when he starts his job and there's about half a dozen of them all in close proximity, all holding ladders on their shoulder and just cycling along. I I actually <laughs> what, the first thing that popped into my head was how can you do that? How can you cycle with a ladder <laughs> o- over your shoulder and a bucket hanging off your handlebars and keep balance? And yeah, because the bicycle weighs four tons. Yeah, yeah,
4: bicycle. They did not,
3: they it's did not carbon fiber. Yeah, they were not built for speed, those bicycles. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, I'm going to start by one of my favorite lines. I've got to disagree with Neil. I, <laughs> I do think this is heavily influenced by Chaplin. Uh, Desica no, always sure said is,
2: he, I'm sure it is influenced by him but it's not the kid the kid is no. at
0: least has got some redemptive qualities this one just I, I, things, I, I think there are elements of the kid in this but everything you're saying about the look of the film what is fascinating about this film is I know it's filmed for very low budget but seeker had the chance to film this with Cary Grant as amazing as that sound that came a lot closer than you would believe what? Yeah, yeah. The, the Hollywood were really keen on having Cary Grant as the father, but probably he wouldn't have nicked the bike at the end. Nice. So it, it'd be, it would have taken it in a completely different direction. So he, he was never going to go with that. I like the, the images, what Phil said about that one, of the guy climbing those shelves to put this vast mm. array of laundry there. It was amazing.
1: Very Very
0: important in Italian.
1: Uh, families, the bedsheets, the the wedding bedsheets that are given to the families and the the wives Uh, on their wedding day. Very, very important.
0: But the whole scene of it, you know, this poverty is set. It's very subtly done. But a lot of the images and the buildings around them were buildings that were built by Mussolini, those flats outside of Rome. Were, mm-hmm. Was something he designed because he wanted to move the poor out of Rome and make it a richer city. The bridge that you see, I think, as Darren mentioned earlier, where the the boy gets into trouble swimming, yeah. uh, that bridge again was all part of the fascist buildings. And then at the very end, you got the football stadium, which is another Mussolini creation. So I thought that was really good. I, I liked this, the bell curve of hope and optimism. Because don't forget, when you see the main character at the beginning, Antonio is sitting away from the people. He's not up there to even try and get a job. He's given up. Mm. And the fact he's then given that hope, and as he goes through the film, he gets more and more excited. So yes, we've got that scene in that restaurant. We saying, well, if I get this money, we're going to be away. I've got this, the family's future's planned. And so he becomes so desperate to try and capture that, that in the end, he becomes the one thing. Yeah. that had got him to that position in the first place that somebody had there's stolen no,
2: There's nothing worse than hope, is there?
0: No. Unless it's the Shawshank Redemption. I think that, and at the very end, and, and I was thinking, well, where does it go from here? It, it's, it's one of those things. You know, you see these films where it's a father-son older in life, and they always have this one thing they never talk about, but there's a the big scene in the film where they talk about what happened in in the youth, and that's going to be the scene in that family. That will haunt that family uh, for mm. the rest of time. So I thought that was good. So I think all of that's great. The one sour note for me, literally sour note, is the music score. I felt that music score was cloying, was sentimental. And when you're doing something which has this documentary feel like this film clearly does, you don't need to lay it on with the trowel. So I think, and you removed or downplayed that score, and the scenes where there is no music work far better than the scenes with music. Mm. But I think that aside, this is a classic. And as much as I hate to say it, great choice, Neil.
1: I think we can conclude this. uh, And I think we all agree it's a classic. So let's go from one film about a man and his son to another. Darren's choice, There Will Be Blood.
5: There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me
3: we'll offer one hundred and fifty thousand for full title when do we get our money daniel i look at people and i see nothing worth
5: liking don't
1: bully me daniel please
5: i see the worst in people
1: we have a sinner with us get out of here devil
5: i have a competition in me i want no one else to succeed
2: There Will Be Blood is loosely based on the 1927 novel by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Upton Sinclair called Oil. Daniel Plainview, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, is a prospector who discovers a big oil reserve at the turn of the 20th century. His whole life becomes oil, finding it, selling it, and becoming rich by it. He even adopts an orphan baby after a fellow prospector is killed so that he can look... More of a family man in his business dealings. Life is good for Daniel. Then he encounters Paul, played by Paul Dano. Notice how the actors have their Christian names as their characters. Paul is a local preacher who also happens to have potential huge oil reserve under his land. Together, the two represent the two cornerstones of America, business and church. Two cornerstones of America which are about to go into conflict. Darren. Were you impressed by this Oscar-winning movie?
4: I was impressed by the look of the film. I thought some of the scenes were absolutely stunning. There was a great atmosphere throughout. It really emphasised the the grittiness of, of, of America, there were some of the scenes that were framed so wonderfully. It made so much great use of space. There was a scene where, where the oil caught fire and there was a disaster. And it looked, the use of colour work was amazing. I thought the score was fantastic. Again, it emphasised the, you know, the atmosphere beautifully, I thought the performances were great. And yet I would be lying if I said that I actually like this film. I found it very slow paced. Uh, but there were scenes where i was just wanting it to just sort of like you know speed up it, it was a film that i sort of admired but i i just found it really pondering times when i just wanted to okay i've i've got the point of this scene just just move on i couldn't really get into the to the story at all i couldn't engage with any of the the, the characters i actually realized as was well as a watching this that as, as much as I know that Daniel Day-Lewis is, is a great actor, I don't think there's a single film that he's ever done that I've actually liked. Uh, you know, I, I he's great in them all, but just the, the films that he does, they, they just don't connect with me. I, I just found that the whole sort of getting to get into the point and everything, you know, really, really tedious. And, and, and of the films that we've all chosen, it's ironic that the one film that I chose is the one that I um, I like the least. I'll take some of that
1: on board, actually. I've seen this film more than once. I saw it when it first came out in 2007. uh, And it was on... uh, My son had a, a list of 50 films he wanted to really watch It was just one of these, you know, 50 films to watch before you die list. I watched it last year as well. And again, you know, I still think it's an excellent movie. It is pondering. The pacing is, I think it's deliberately very slow. I mean, it's very powerful and weird and cinematic. And it's the big heavy metaphor of capitalism versus the church. And in the case of this representation of the church, both have lost their way. They're just focusing on the wrong things. I love the music. It is in my top 10 films of all time. I think the central performance from Daniel Day-Lewis is mesmerizing. The opening 20 minutes are just incredible as well. So the cinematography and, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's direction is just razor sharp. I just think it's uh, brilliant performances, brilliant cinematography, brilliant music, incredible direction, screenplay. Everything's exceptional. And the end bit, you know, beats the church to death. Yeah, it's just such a metaphor for modern America. It's just untrue.
2: Uh, I love. Paul Dana's, um performance yes. too. I mean, holding your own against Daniel Day Lewis is uh, is pretty good, but he he does both brothers as well. Uh, a man obsessed with gaining respect and really unable to understand or trust people. Yeah, it's it's he's got so few redeemable features, and and still it works. Paul Thomas Anderson stays with Daniel Day-Lewis most of the time rather than sort of wide shots of how mm. well he's doing and all these oil fields and all everything. Rather than show that, he shows this sort of um, how badly Daniel day Lewis's character is doing mentally. And fantastic, yeah.
3: I, it honestly physically wounds me to hear anyone and say that they dislike the film to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, fight, I'll, fight, I'll fight. set my stall out early, but this is hands down the best film we're going to be talking about this in, in this session. And uh, it's an American masterpiece. It's just amazing. And I, I've seen it about a dozen times um, when Darren picked this film. I was like, cool, I get to watch it again. I love it. I don't think anybody, nobody says anything. I think for the first 13 minutes of the film, as we see Plainview go from um, silver prospector to oil man, he's not a father because he wants to be a father. He takes the the baby of a dead workman and then uses it to progress his career. There's a, a statement he makes about halfway through, about two thirds of the way through the film, where he says, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. It's not about just him succeeding. It's that he doesn't want anyone else to. It has to be about him, you know, conquering all. And, you know, he's not a person. This isn't, you know, it's not a real person. This is basically capitalism versus the church, as people have said. And it's just so perfectly raw. I think it's stunning. And and the final two words of the film just really, you know, it's the sort of thing that just hit you like a sledgehammer. One little interesting sort of tidbit there. You said poor Danos manages to stand toe to toe with Daniel Delus. Actually, he he was only originally cast to be the brother. Mm-hmm. Points him out to the plot of land, and they had a different actor mm. cast for the other brother, yeah. and that didn't work wow. out um, for one reason or another. And and everyone has said that it's nothing to do with you know, clashes or anything like that. Just that the actor didn't feel that he could. You know, do the service to that role. Wow! They asked Paul Dano to do it at incredibly short notice, and apparently he was a little bit, you know, unsure because he hadn't practiced or prepared for that role. And you know, he he gives an absolutely stunning performance.
6: Yeah. I
2: love the bit where they're so manipulative with the children, bringing the dragging the children in, saying, "Oh, the children are our future." And then when even when his redemptive bit in the church, he he doesn't talk about the death. No. guy he's just killed um <laughs> he talks about the, the the sending his son off to boarding school
3: but again you, wherever that, he went. that's a stunning scene because you know the mm. venom in um Day de lewis's face you know he's not doing that because he believes it. he's doing that because yeah. that's a means to an end that gets yes. him where he wants to be use and the yet, church rather
2: and, than actually
3: be involved in it yeah Yeah. And we've mentioned the score. So this was Johnny Greenwood's second film score. So, Radiohead guitarist, greatest band in the world. And um,
4: (laughs) uh, biased much.
3: Yeah. And he's done by miles. He's done every single um, score for Paul Thomas Anderson since this, I believe. So, this was Mm -hmm. his second score ever. It was his first for Paul Thomas Anderson. And I believe he's done every Paul Thomas Anderson film since then.
0: I've got to say that three-quarters of the film matches everything that Phil sets. It's a world set in film that you you get to see the development of this capitalism, of these oils, you know, the great oil rigs, the trains. You you feel you're in that world. Dave Lewis plays a really frightening character. There's nothing to him, and and I accept all you're saying about the fact that they're not characters as such, but they are representations of capitalism and the church. The problem for me... As it goes away from Upton Sinclair's novel, which gives it a really good ground in the way it starts and into the last quarter, where it all falls apart, it goes completely over the top, and it feels almost like it wasn't scripted. Day-Lewis starts becoming Robert De Niro, and not good Robert De Niro either. He's far too over the top with a lot of it, although the milkshake speech is fun and actually based on a real speech that happened in a courtroom over oil. Dano as well great for most of it but again at the end is so whingy and whiny and i think he struggled a little bit with that but i don't want to take away from the power of the rest of the film For three quarters of it this is just an amazing film and a world which you live in and, and you feel is real all around you so i would start and say yeah it's good i think anderson is again another one of the great american directors i just don't think he's that good a script writer Okay, so it's a fascinating discussion. So let's go from one filmateur, Paul Thomas Anderson, to another, Christopher Nolan, for our next film, and Graham's choice, The Prestige. It's the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. I need to know how he does it. He
5: has no trick. It's real. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called The Pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, but of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called The Turn.
4: He's obsessed with discovering your method.
5: The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called The Prestige. Ah! This is the part with the twists and turns where lives hang into balance. Julie, come on. And you see something shocking you've never seen before. Ah! This was built by a man who can actually do what magicians pretend to do. Real magic. I
1: know what you really
5: are. How does he do it?
0: You want the truth.
4: Nothing is impossible. i I'm break it down, bro.
0: Same question as before. Other than Graham... Who hasn't seen this before?
4: I hadn't seen it.
0: In between his first and second Batman films, director Christopher Nolan made The Prestige, based on the novel by Christopher Priest. It's set in Victorian England. It is the story of two rival magicians. One is Alfred Borden, played by Christopher Bale, who invents a trick so mysterious no one can work out how it's done. The other is Robert Anger, played by Hugh Jackman who already blames Borden for the death of his wife and who is determined to outdo him in the magic stakes by learning the secret of Alfred's ultimate trick. His determination to know and be the best takes him down a very dark and strange path. Now, I've got to say, we are going to be talking spoilers, and this really is a film that, if you haven't seen it, needs to be experienced first. So I would urge you to skip this review until you've seen this film. Graham, this must be one of the few Christopher Nolan films you haven't seen. How does it compare to his other more well-known films?
1: This is the only one I haven't seen. Um, I really don't know how I missed this. I loved it. I sat down and I thought, okay, here we go. And at the end of it, my head was in a whiz. I just was spinning. I just could not believe it. A great performance from Jackman. Bale and Kane are just wonderful as well. And uh, It's always lovely to see David Bowie in a movie, but yeah, I just thought it was great. It's a masterclass in pacing, starting with with just the explanation of the meaning of the phrase, the prestige, explained by Michael Caine. But mind you, I could listen to Michael Caine explain tax law and still be entertained. (laughs) (laughs) The introduction of the characters, the tragedy, the revenge, the Character dynamic with the two totally driven men. They want to destroy one another, not only physically, but they want to ruin each other's careers. It's just wonderful. Love the setup and the reveal at the end. Which I probably I guessed halfway through the film, but it was quite an interesting and and, and strange reveal of the two twin brothers. I just thought I was so good. Great ending great fun and then again another great Saturday night uh, film it was spectacular yeah I just loved it absolutely loved it and I had a huge long phone call with Jeff afterwards discussing it and um, we'll probably come on to some interesting points later on when Jeff does his sum up
3: yeah (laughs) this is a great film I mean I don't think gonna say Christopher Nolan hasn't made a bad film I think it's it's brilliant. Uh, t- uh, so the thing that I like most about it is is what um, Graham just said. So it spends the first sort of 10 minutes or so of the film explaining what the prestige is. So there's three parts to a magic trick, the pledge, the turn, the prestige, I think they are. Yes, and definitely. And he explains to you what they are. Now, this film is basically director going, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the three parts of a magic trick and I'm going to structure my film exactly like that I'm going to tell you up front exactly what's going to happen and then you're going to spend the whole film watching me do that trying to guess what it is at the end it's that's almost ridiculous bullishness that he's going to do that but you actually spend the whole film going okay so what's going to happen and even when you watch it again so again, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've watched this, you watch it again. And even with the knowledge of knowing what's going to happen, you're constantly reassessing and going, okay, this is what's happening here. Does that tie in with that? And you're, you're trying to work it out. It's so brilliantly put together. You're fascinated every time you watch it. The two other things I was going to pull out was we all know christian bell is an excellent actor but actually hugh jackman is the big draw here he turns in a really nuanced performance of a man who's just distraught by guilt and jealousy and anger and i like that they kept the conceit of the book that the two character names uh, say abra out of abracadabra so you've got um, Alfred Borden, A.B. and Robert Angier, R.A. A.B.R.A. No abracadabra! It's <laughs> a magic trick.
2: Yeah, I love this film. Um, I, just Christopher Nolan, as, as Phil said, Christopher Nolan jumbles up the order of things. It's, in, it's 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 a magic trick in itself. The whole thing is one magic trick with misdirection after misdirection, and still managing to get the reveal at the end, which is hidden.
4: Yeah, as soon as I'd um, finished. Watching this film, I went on the internet to look at uh, theories about this because as I was watching it, I thought there's so much more going on here than, than what I've actually seen. I love as well that it's quite um, ambiguous about the fact that it, it establishes that there is a Hugh Jackman double early on in the film. It's never You're never actually convinced if the uh, if a magic box actually does work or not.
0: Coming on to something I'm going to pick up on in a minute, but you're absolutely right.
4: And, and that, of course, threw me because when we have the scene where he's drowning, I assumed that who that actually, you know, was was in there, and it is quite possible that it, that it is. But it is—it's left so open. I was just absolutely blown away by this film. I thought it was just so, you know, so so completely clever. You know, just tricked you at every stage. And, and like I said, I, I still am not convinced that we that any of us got the entire full story. But the ending itself, where you know that final scene. Where you see the the body on in the chamber, is it just one of the many sort of um, duplicates that got made and got killed, or is that the real him? Because and I've I could never actually spot it, but there are some people claim that you can actually just see a slight air bubble rise up. Now wh- whether or not the recording I had just wasn't enough to pick it up, perhaps the possibility that you know, the, the real Hugh Jackman is is in there. I, I just thought this film was absolutely astounding. I absolutely loved it.
0: Michael Caine starts the film by telling you what a magic trick is and how you are conned by it. He then goes on later in the film to explain to you how Christian Bale does that trick. And he explains it quite simply, but we don't want to hear these things. We want the trick. If you think about it, what Nolan has done, he's taken you through this film and how do you believe a cloning device worked? And the clever way that's done is you're not seeing these things play out real time. You're, you're seeing them play out through notebooks and diaries so i don't think there ever was a cloning machine that that in itself is a trick and the reason why i think that there's a couple of clues to that one is why on earth would hugh jackman want to know how christian bale did his trick if he'd done something that's even better you wouldn't you wouldn't be that interested framing him yes i can understand that but the fact that you know you have believed almost like if you go to a magic show and you watch somebody saw in a woman in half and they put them back together, you question how they do that. Nolan is so clever with his magic. He slights of hands you with the two twins, the two, the Bale characters. So you look over there, that's the twist. The real twist is there is no cloning machine. You've been fooled on that as well. And I thought that was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so explain
3: uh, that then, because I think that there is a cloning machine. So no, no, uh, what? no the uh, cloning
1: because everything else is real, and this is scientific trickery. So the whole thing is Nolan playing a trick on you, and he sets it all up. You fall for it, and then at the end he has the payoff, which is the the, the guy in the thing, and none of that is real. Yeah, and that's so the the whole film is a magic trick.
0: Yeah, mm. and and that and if you think about it. Why on earth would every night he create uh, a duplicate and have that duplicate killed? Whereas if he's, got, if he's got two the first night, well, why not keep the two? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's no need to go through that elaborate. And, and as I said, every time you, it, that you know about the trick or you see something, it's being narrated from a book. It's, it's so skillful. And so I did not see it. And it was only when Kane was starting to explain things. And like Darren, I went away and, and read some stuff on it. You're thinking,
3: yeah, I've been caught big time. Yeah, brilliant. So I'm, brilliant. I'm, I'm feeling stupid now then, because I don't understand that we see them go into the, the building, the underground thing where he's got the blind people doing it. And there's lots of tanks with bodies in it. So how is there not a cloning device? Who's he killing every night? It's right it's, okay. It's, what
0: you're seeing is what he's written in a book, so it's being narrated to you. It's an unreliable yeah, yeah, yeah. narrator, so that's what part of it was. Part of it was, I think that double of him is killed in the film, and they make you believe that it's the real Hugh Jackman that's been killed. So that's how they frame Christian Bale, they only kill one person, in my right, opinion, okay, the way the film okay. works.
3: So, so, you don't it's, so the fact that he's performed the trick multiple times. And then he somehow knows when Christian Bell's going to come and watch it. And then they swap in the, the double. Yeah. Or they use the double every night, but he somehow knows to have the tank underneath at that particular night.
0: Maybe he has been killing him. I don't know. I mean, but ultimately, you'll watch the film where you have accepted Tesla created a cloning machine. machine. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: <That's> the- <laughs>
2: yeah. Thank you for all your comments. What this review section needs, if only to annoy Jeff, are more foreign language films. Thank goodness for Phil, who picked the original Old Boy. Other than Phil and of course
4: Jeff as foreign languages is kryptonite who hasn't seen this film before? Uh I hadn't seen it before this. The reason I'd never actually seen Old Boy before this is somebody actually revealed to me the big twist at the end. And for some reason that oh. put me off ever seeing it. Not not because I didn't like the sound of the twist. It just I just felt like the movie had actually been spoiled for me. That's why mm. I'd never got around to watching it.
0: Spoiler alert, we are also going to dis- reveal the end <laughs> We
4: are
1: going to reveal the end, yes.
2: Um, I'm not. Okay, but, yeah, we probably will. Old Boy stars odesu played by Min Sik Choi, a businessman who is kidnapped during a drunken night out and wakes up in a sealed hotel room, which is, in fact, a prison cell. There he is kept for 15 years. After that time is up, he is released. Why was Odysseus imprisoned and why was released at that time? And mysteries, and Odysseus and we, the audience, have to solve. Highly acclaimed for its stylization and dark storyline. Is Old Boy still powerful today, Phil? What do you think?
3: Yeah, I was thinking almost every turn when I thought that kind of reached its uh, hideous sort of peak, it kind of just did another thing that made me go, oh. Okay. <laughs> um, doubles down, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And he, he does it yeah, he does it multiple times throughout. So I I'd never seen this and my brother lent me this out on Blu-ray about three years ago and I thought when we talked about this show, I thought, well it'd be a really good time to watch that and give it back to him. Um, And it also completed... So Empire did 100 greatest movies of all time, and I've been sat on 99 for ages, so I've now seen all 100 of their greatest movies. (laughs) This was in their 100 greatest movies? Yeah, it is. Oh, stop it. Um, (laughs) So we are going to spoil the film, so I would say you know, definitely, if you have any intention, watch this without listening to us talk about it. And before I spoil it, what I will say is that it just keeps pushing the limit on, you know, what kind of levels of torture that they will um, dish out to this guy. So all I was really aware of before I watched this was that a person is imprisoned for a period of time and then just released. And it's kind of a revenge tale of how he tries to find out who did that and why. And the only other thing I really was aware of was the legendary one-take corridor fight scene and the fact that the actor actually ate a live octopus for a real scene, (laughs) uh, for an actual (laughs) scene. And and apparently he did that four times. They did that scene four times, so he ate four live octopuses despite the fact that he's a vegetarian. Now that is commitment to the (laughs) art. And, And you know what? those things weren't the most shocking of this film. (laughs) You know, by the time we get to the final, final twist, which is essentially about incest and how this guy has tricked him into sleeping with his own daughter, I just couldn't believe that they'd gone that far. And the film isn't just sort of there for like, it's not really just shock value. It's just masterfully sort of put together where We've got a really, really great performance in a really original film. I'm still kind of shocked by it now, having only seen it once and it a few weeks ago now, but I'm still shocked and I don't know quite how to put into words how the directors managed to weave this story. And I didn't kind of see any of it coming. And each time he dropped some, you know, an extra thing, I was just kind of like in awe of the fact that you know, I didn't see it coming and, you know, the lengths that he'd go to to sort of torture this guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a favourite of mine, so thank you, Phil. It, um, it would be. It's dark. It's, it's not the sort of film I usually watch. A dark, thrillingly horrible, sadistic, violent, a stripping bear, this Odysseus chap.
6: Sounds like you're um, on the golf course now. And
2: then... <laughs> it is actually and ripping his life up and leaving him a shell of a man it's a tragedy where the reason for all his misfortunes are explained at the end in one of the most uncomfortable scenes i've ever seen mido a young woman again another bit that uh, finds this sort of um, changed odesu uh, from a weak man a drunk man and to someone who she finds some kind of strength and good in him and again the Payoff at the end is really uncomfortable. It's violent, stylish, outrageous, and explosive. Brilliant film from Park Chan-wook.
1: I remember seeing this movie when it was first released on DVD in the UK back in two thousand and five. I think it was, and I was floored by it. I just thought, "What the hell have I just watched?" That was
0: Do you watch it on your own or with your family. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I watched it on my own because um, my wife's not a big fan of people eating live octopuses. Um, but yeah, I just, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, and I loved it. It is very stylish. And re watching it, it's still quite visceral as, as, a, as a movie. When I watched it the second time, I think the thing I got was that he's crazy. He's been in a room for 15 years. He's been in solitary confinement. So everything he does is crazy. And he's lost all perspective and humanity and ability to reason. He's just simply a man on a mission driven by a desire to find his captor within five days. I mean, it's just a crazy person's brutal and disturbing
4: story. I love this. Um, I (laughs) I couldn't believe how messed up this film was and it just as it went along just completely just raised the stakes along the way I mean I mean not just the violence just the, the very tone of all the revelations that came along you know the, the fact that this guy was sort of locked up for all these years and that was just basically the intro pretty much that was just you know I, I assume that the whole film was going to be him in this room and, and that was just to get things going and I just thought it was <laughs> amazing. I've got to say one thing that's not been mentioned that the main villain in this, the guy who's pulling the strings, I thought he was absolutely fabulous. He was so hateful. He basically wins. You don't even get the satisfaction of, um, of the revenge being taken out of him because he basically, he takes his own life. He wins on every single level.
0: I, I just actually disagree with that actually sorry Darren I think he he's lost he lost before this even started because
3: he lost the love of his life what his yeah, yeah which was his sister
0: yeah um, and yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Yeah.
3: This,
0: <laughs> yeah that and that scene the flashback where he's with his sister when she dies he's a tragic villain he's not somebody to I don't think he's somebody to despise okay oh, i know oh, you know Machiavellian. Like yeah, we don't we don't advertise that sort of thing. We do think it's wrong, but I do think in the terms of that
4: character, it, he he has had a, a, a tragic life. So by that rationale, um, every hero in a revenge movie loses because even though he gets revenge at the end, the 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 thing that is, you can't erase the thing at the start, that but, but set him off on the revenge.
0: But that careless talk in this case had cost lives, hasn't it? What film did you watch? <laughs> yeah. the, the fact is, yes, what he was doing with his sister was wrong. I accept all of that, but it led to her death, and that's got to be a greater wrong. Come the end of the film, I had sympathy with him. I'm being <laughs> serious. I'm being serious. I I felt that he was getting his own back because of gossips.
1: Yeah,
3: I that's he, just. That's just. Phenomenal logic. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, See, I'm glad feeling. <laughs> <laughs> not, but he's he doing a win. good way. Yeah. Yeah. Phen- phenomenal absence <laughs> of. Oh, I just I'm dumbfounded by the logic. That, yeah. <laughs> I agree with what Darren said. Oh, I think he's a villain that wins. You know, he even says that he will kill himself when he's achieved his goal, and he achieves his goal, and he does that. Yes, absolutely. He's killed himself. I don't call that winning.
1: Well, yeah, he feels it's twisted, winning. He's a twisted, evil Machiavellian he's, character.
0: Of it's Asian cinema. None of it makes sense to me.
4: Oh, God. The one downer I will have on this film, and it's the film that dis- I'd, I'd always heard about this absolutely awesome corridor fight scene. And I don't know if it's just because it's been done so, much, so many times since mm. then. And you know, yeah. the, I actually was yeah. disappointed by that. Uh, I'm sure at the time it was basically maybe revolutionary it just looked really clumsy it 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 didn't really look realistic cuz to have be gang that was like running at him and we just all seemed to be throwing themselves away instead of him being one hitting them so that is the, the one thing that disappointed me about the film and the, the, the you know but, but otherwise I absolutely loved everything else I just thought that one scene didn't live up to the hype that I'd heard about it thank you Dan
0: Phil said earlier Oh, here we go. Different levels of torture in this film. And as a viewer, I felt he was absolutely right. Now, thankfully, I managed to get a dubbed print, so I was able to watch it in English and not have to read things at the bottom of the screen, so I could focus fully on the visuals.
1: Philistine.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry, sorry, was that my outside voice? Sorry about that, yeah. So I was meant to yeah, say that in yeah. my head.
0: Okay. So That's how Trump started. And, um... <laughs> what? But the dub, it doesn't matter, because mainly it's 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 all voiceover anyway. But I, I've got to say, as a founder member of the League <laughs> Against Cruelty to Octopi, I, I just <laughs> found that absolutely objectionable. They killed four of them. But that side, it's so over the top. I thought Ming-Sing Chow's performance was awful. I didn't buy into it at all. The Hammer Attack sequence is all right, Darren said, though it's done since and much better.
2: That's because the they tr-
0: use jump cuts. The point about this is that it's one cut. This ending, I thought, was quite light, dark and satisfying. I did understand a little bit of you know the villain's motives come the end of it. As I said, careless talk costs lives. So let that be a lesson to you, Neil. Uh, I thought Zhou young music score was excellent. That I would agree with. But ultimately, I thought the film was boring and uninvolving. And to be quite honest, I wish we watched Spike Lee's remake.
1: Well, that one certainly divided opinions. Over to our last choice, and it comes from Jeff. Jeff picked Children of Men.
5: I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since
2: women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for?
6: The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old.
5: The ultimate mystery. Why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move
1: along! Move
2: along! So... Who's seen this before? Me. 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 Oh, it's just me then. Just and me. Oh. So, set in 2027, yes, only six and a half years away, the film itself was made in 2006. The human race has become infertile. Britain has become a police state and zero policy for immigrants coming to the country. Living amongst this slow decline of civilization is Theo Farron. Played by Clive Owen, a once passionate activist, now ambivalent to it all. That is, until he becomes part of a plan to save a refugee and possibly humanity. Jeff, after watching this movie, did you wish you'd seen it first when it came out?
0: Actually, Neil, I'm glad I didn't, because looking at this film now, and I loved this film, it really is Brexit Britain.
2: I nearly, nearly said that in the intro. Yeah, go on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, they've they've sealed off the way they treat immigrants. It's even got a pandemic reference in there as well. But I thought the visual look of the film was excellent. The opening scene when he's in London in that London street with the tuk-tuks in amongst the the standard traffic, you, you get that sequence of civilization fraying at the edges because if we have no future generations, then what is there worth living for? So I thought that was really clever. I also liked in terms of the plot in, there are a number of twists that introduce main characters and quickly kills them off. So I didn't see a lot of that come in. I think Clive Owen of all the performances is sort of the weakest, but then he has to be a reactor more than an actor because he's taken us through this landscape in a way. and, and, Oddly, what it reminded me of was the Humphrey Bogart character of Rick, Rick Blaine in Casablanca. Again, Mm. it's it's a guy who is ambivalent to everything, but ultimately is drawn into it. There's a very strong religious theme running through the film about personal paths to redemption. The, The longer the path, the more that character seems to survive within the film. I thought that was quite good. It's powerful, unforgettable, and it's a film of today rather than when it was made, which is really scary.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, I was amazed of how sort of timely it, it is. And you you could um, show somebody this film today and they would have thought it would have been made just for the things which are going on you know, within this country. Again, you can put a bit of a virus in, but I, I thought it was an incredible film. I, I actually, I really loved it well, how it introduced you to to the concept of the world, because the, by the news report that the youngest, person in the world had been murdered and just sort of how this was such a big global event this one person how there was now a new youngest person i thought that was a really clever way of basically just sort of showing how messed up this world was and how important that this guy become a celebrity just because he was the world's youngest man but yeah i i thought this film was absolutely incredible but the tone was wonderful nowadays these post-apocalyptic films which a lot of them have been um, hijacked by um, teenage, young adult-based movies. The fact that there were like just little things like the fact that there were suicide kits that you could buy in stores. People could you know, buy them now. That's how how bleak and hopeless people's um, lives were. That that was now just like an option that you could get at the supermarket. Just, just little things like that. I, I just thought it was absolutely incredible. And again, look at things from yeah. you know a, a completely new perspective
0: yeah and, and and the other thing i didn't say is again sort of demystifying the whole thing and having the hero is for a lot of the film clive clive owen is wearing uh flip-flops it's almost taking that die hard thing you know where willis is running around in his bare feet but to the next level because it's even more ridiculous for a hero to be doing that mm. Yeah.
1: oh i mean <laughs> i mean this is is my film i Love this film. It's a sci-fi masterpiece. I absolutely love it. It does that thing that classic sci-fi does. It takes a central idea, just one idea, humans can no longer reproduce, and then lets the ramifications of that work out through a couple of hours. It's so well done. It really is from, you know, T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men you know and these people are hollow when when they're living in this world there's no there's no future there's no nothing will continue on humanity will just die out the film is just so striking and it physically attacks your senses this film that bomb blast in the start made me hit the roof and you know, just leapt off my seat and, and the immigrants in cages way too close to the direction our own country is heading Great performances, Clive Owen, uh, Julianne Moore, and uh, again, my favourite uh, reader of tax law, uh, Michael Caine. <laughs> um, fantastic wardrobing, you know, they've got all those little things. The fact that Clive Owen is wearing a, a London 2012 t-shirt in the film, yeah. makes 26, you know, 2006.
0: Um but how often do you hear that now? You know, with Brexit Britain, the last four years we've had people thinking about. Well, it's a big, it's a big change from when we had the Olympics in London. Yeah,
1: yeah, I know the high point of our country. Yes. Yeah, when we were it's all working together as a team. Touch point, but, isn't hey, it? From the last
2: yeah. time we were all together properly.
1: Yeah, yeah, and just to finish off, I thought the lighting, cinematography, yeah, everything. Just the, the sound design is just off the chart. Uh, for me, this is perfection as a movie. It's in my top five.
3: Okay, Phil. I just think that Alphonse, Alfonso Cuaron is brilliant at meshing <clears throat> the ridiculously technically brilliant with the emotionally impactful so i really love gravity as well because he does he does an he does a similar sort of thing where it's about human emotion but in a kind of a a sort of futuristic science sort of science sort of viewpoint so for me it's all about like the sort of deep, the little intricacies and the details. So, you just mentioned the 2012 Olympics uh, jumper hoodie thing that he was wearing, which is just that's so prescient because it was made in 2006. He had no, uh, you know, perception of how much we would now, you know, you watch that now and you think how we all look back at how 2012 Olympics was what, one of the greatest things we did. Set that, you know, where we're welcoming, you know, People from all countries over here to celebrate this big event, set against this right-wing government that the film has sort of spiraled into, and how we're vilifying and um, imprisoning um, refugees—it's really prescient. And in little details, again, like so, he's uh, when he's on the train going out of London, um, there is a bit of graffiti where it says something like um, "Last one alive, turn off the lights," which I thought was really fantastic.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I agree with everybody. An excellent sci-fi story in a dystopian future that actually isn't that far away. Um, I mean, It could have been written by George Orwell as well. Um, yeah. London as a grimy, gritty hole was done fantastically. The derelict buildings outnumbering the ones that could be used. The feeling of hopelessness and despairs is almost And fear is palpable. And again, Theo's London 2012 sweatshirt is a symbol of how fast things have crumbled, really. I love the Michael Caine art. A little bit of humour in there for him amongst all this disaster. It's an excellent thriller. Clive Owen is excellent in it.
1: Right, well, that's our reviews done. Let's speed over to Darren's Dash.
4: Okay, so first up is uh, Vast of the Nice. Uh, This is by first-time director Andrew Patterson, who pretty much self-financed this um, £700,000 film. Uh, It's currently on Amazon Prime. Uh, It's set on a night in a uh, small American town on the night of a big basketball game, and a young woman who works as a telephone operator notices a strange audio signal, which appears on the local radio show and on her telephone line. And her and her friend, the DJ, start to investigate and find that there's an incredible phenomenon maybe going on. For a cheap film like this, I thought they did such a good job of basically making everything count. The film's set in sort of um, in real time. It creates kind of the illusion of being in um, one take. It's got a bit of a Twilight Zone feel to it. The suspense absolutely builds beautifully. It's really creepy. As the film goes on, the, the two people start to um, interview people who may or may not know what is going on, to start things off as a foreboding call into the radio station with someone who um, sort of says that what's going on might have links to the military. It's a really good build to, towards this story. Um, I, I was absolutely mesmerised.
0: So next on my list, Summer of 84.
4: Okay, so so this is one which is currently on um, Shudder, which is uh, one of the uh, add-on channels on uh, Amazon Prime. It's a Canadian horror film, and it's about a young boy who lives in the suburbs, and he's convinced that his police neighbour may be responsible for a, uh, a history of kidnappings and murders of children which has been going on in his state. And he convinces a couple of his friends to help him investigate this and follow around this this guy and so there's lots of tense moments where they're sort of like breaking into places or following the guy and there's a chance that they might get caught and everything this has vibes of them um, of a stephen king style novel like eight and it's got a little bit of the stranger things to it as well because it's all about a group of friends and they've all got with the tropes one of them's the nerdy one one of them's the uh, the overweight kid who's extremely loyal. Another one knows the uh, the the rebel who basically sort of like you know brings them sort of alcohol and cigarettes and everything. And there's also the hot girl from across the road who uh, gets into the um, their antics as well. Even as derivative of those as it is, it gets surprisingly dark and very adult. There's several times where, for me, it left these little red herrings as to what was going on, which I thought I'd spotted, but then turned out to to be basically not what was actually happening i thought this was a really really good film it is really dark again it's got a bit of a twilight zone type thing but more of the stephen king vibe to it i don't want to say a great deal about it because there are some real sort of cool twists and everything but it is that sort of um coming of age coming to the end of your school life moving on type storyline next time to hunt Okay, time to right. Okay, this one's currently on um, Netflix and it's a um, another South Korean movie. So um, you'll love this one. <laughs> this is set. Amongst, oh, yeah, I'm sold already. Yeah, well, I've got to say, I've really taken to Korean films in, in the last several years. but they, I've got the <laughs> same sort of excitement for these. I used to have the Hong Kong movies back in the day. And this one has that sort of Hong Kong movie vibe. It's about a gang of friends who are, are the minor criminals. And they hatch a plot to rob a mob-owned casino. In the process of that, they accident- as well as stealing all the money, they accidentally steal some uh, videotapes, which has footage of some illegal and um, political deals which have been going on there. But the Mafia-type gang starts to hunt them down and they send a really scary, seemingly unstoppable hitman to go after them. If you're a fan of John Moby's back in the 90s, you, you'll really like this, because it's got those elements of um, of friendship, of, of loyalty, of, of brotherhood. It's also got those sort of, um, what we used to call heroic bloodshed um, action scenes. It is really good. It's a lot. Better than the films that you uh, that you would normally get, just the action films, just going straight onto Netflix. If you're into your sort of your Eastern um, gangster type movies, this is a really good one. I, I was really impressed by it, and-, and the action scenes are are great. Bliss. Okay, um, this is another one which is on Shudder. This is about an, an artist called Desi, who's a young woman. She's basically out of control. She's got loads and loads of problems, uh, most of them that she's brought on herself by sort of partying and general drinking and drug-taking and antisocial behaviour. She's also got having I mean, an artist block. She's supposed to be working on this painting that's being commissioned. And she takes some mysterious drugs, which she's told will help her creativity and uh, give her sort of energy to stay up and sort of finish her thing. And the rush she gets sends her into this like weird sort of surreal trance. It actually inspires her to do some really great sort of painting work. But it also starts to send her out even more out of control. Again, it's I'm not going to sort of tell what the, what the twists in that, but uh, things start to spiral out of control very quick. She basically descends in, into madness. And the result is gets very, very shocking. And I have to say very, very gory. This is a film which is—it's a very heavy on the senses. There's lots of surreal images thrown at you, lots of weirdness. It stays for me. It stayed just on the right side of slipping into pretension. It's got a real cult movie vibe to it. I did really like it. If you thought that Uncut Gems was a um, a bit intense and in your face, um, you probably wouldn't like this one. But if you if you really want a horror film and something really, really different, th- this is a good one to have a go at.
0: Okay, and finally, can we take a joke?
4: Okay, so this is a documentary I stumbled across on Amazon Prime, and it's about a subject that... I'm really interested in. It's all about the effects that, that the modern day PC thinking has on comedy, in particular stand-up comedy. Um, there are lots of anecdotal stories from comedians who've, who've fallen foul of, of this sort of this movement. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on, on the college community and how sort of. What was once a sort of bastion of sort of um, like um, satire and everything has has gone completely the opposite. There's people who have had their um, their lives disrupted by just saying the wrong thing on Twitter and and being fired. What it actually does quite clever is it tells a lot of these stories and running throughout it, they, there's also the narrative about the life of Lenny Bruce, who basically sort of was one of the first ones who rang a foul on this sort of thing. The interesting difference it makes is that Lenny Bruce fell afoul of like the conservative right, and he will be getting arrested. On his stand-up shows, he'd be blackboard and that sort of thing. He'd be prosecuted. But the thing is that nowadays, it's actually the other side. It's the, all the outrage and witch hunts basically come down from from the left. I find this, sort of, this idea about the whole thing of free speech uh, against being offended a, re- a really fascinating subject. I have to say that the film is very one. Sided. There's not a great room for sort of d- debate and and stuff. To me, it's a good start of the argument. The funny thing about this film is it was made back in 2015, and since then, I think things have got. depending on your point of view, either worse or or better. They've certainly gone even more extreme from when this film was was made. So you could do a, a follow up and just sort of include even more stories and the and the way we're doing. I think it's a really fascinating film to me it's a, it's a really you know fascinating and interesting subject I probably won't say too much about it because I'll probably get blackballed myself okay, that's definitely one I want to see.
0: Thank you very much for this month's stash Darren.
2: Thank you very much for that, Darren. Okay. Out of all the films we have reviewed, which film would you rate above all others this month? To make it more interesting, you can't pick your own selection.
0: Go on in Neil. For me. Oh, boy. Graham. Children of Men. Well, I can't pick my own, so I'm going to pick The Prestige. Darren. I will go for The Prestige.
3: Phil. There will be blood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> choice of prestige. That works.
1: Yeah. As for next month, we'll continue to put out as much material as we can, and we've collected a lot of it. As our Twitter hashtag says, still podcasting. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another at the flicks is in the can.
0: Thanks, everyone. It's been a great show. For next month, I suggest we all pick a guilty pleasure favourite. Neil, that means you can finally now talk about Can't Stop the Music. <laughs>
2: i would rather talk about well welsh lives matter no stop writing in my section jeff and i've picked a film next month that you
1: like i've picked a series of films that nobody will like but i love so i'm only allowed to get to the first one so you're going to get the first one of my guilty
3: pleasure and to everyone else thanks for listening and goodbye
1: To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, at attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.